I'm Dominic Norberg. And I'm Duncan McNichol. And this is our episode of... <laughs> Not exactly rocket science. And we are interviewing people who really know their stuff in fields that we know nothing about. Yeah, and the fields that we do know about are chemistry, physics, engineering, computer science. Um, to a limited extent, even rocket science. Exactly, and so that's why the podcast is called Not Exactly Rocket Science. .fm if you want to look it up online. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here in Glasgow today to talk to uh, Karen Foltz, who is actually a chemist. Um, so Duncan is cheating, basically. I basically, yeah, I'm, I'm cheating. But she uh, she doesn't just work in chemistry, she works in a variety of other things, and we're going to talk to her about that. Yeah, and I guess the most accurate description of what Karen does will probably come from Karen herself. So my name is Karen Falls, so I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of Strathclyde. I'm the head of the BioNano and Analytical Research section, and also one of the directors of the Optima CDT. That, that title was long enough yeah so can you can you split those things up a little bit those different um, parts of your research basically we use nanoparticles so nanoparticles being very 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 small pieces of metal we can tune the size and shape so when i say small piece of metal they're on the nanoscale so usually less than 100 nanometers which is about this thousandth of the size of a human hair so we can change the size and the shape of these nanoparticles because they give them different optical properties so in very simple terms it changes the color that they absorb and scatter light at so by tuning their size effectively it changes their properties so how how are they made how are they made it's generally quite simple it's hard to do well but they're quite simple to make because it is mainly a process of just adding different reagents and boiling them together. Right. So you add different metal molecules and then different re- reducing reagents. Okay, stop. So Karen just used some words. Um, normally, this is the point where I say that I didn't understand them, but actually I kind of did understand them because I have a background in chemistry. Um, but I thought it might be better to explain them anyway. So um, I've asked Kat to explain them. Um, so uh, she used the term reducing reagent. And what does she mean by that? Okay, so a reducing reagent is something that causes another molecule to be reduced. And reduction is the opposite of oxidation, which is what rust is. Right. Um, So in the case of a metal salt, like gold or silver, to make the nanoparticles, um, the reducing agents take from the salt molecule um, and it causes the gold salt to become a gold atom. So it's like doing a, a reverse rusting process. So we get like sort of rusty gold. Yeah. And, and dissolve it and then we de-rust it. Yes. To make the gold. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Um, so because I, I can time travel. I also know that later on, Karen is going to um, use some other words. Um, so I thought we'd just knock them out right now. Um, so she's going to talk about assays. What does she mean by that? Yeah. An assay is just a fancy science word for a test. Awesome. Love those fancy science words. You've yeah. got to keep the normal people unaware of what's going on in science. Oh, totally. Can't, can't have anyone knowing no. what we're up to. No, 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 no. Um, she also uses the word analyte. An analyte is just something you're trying to detect with your assay. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So it's it's the thing that we're looking for. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and she also uses the word adsorb, not absorb, adsorb. Yeah. So adsorb is a kind of chemistry term. Um, so instead of something chemically bonding to a substance, it kind of just physically sticks to it instead. Okay. Um, it is still kind of bonded to it but it's not as stable as if it was a chemical bond okay so it's it's in that sort of same field as absorbing but but just a little different yeah 
nanoparticle. And sometimes you can add some extra reagents that might make, for example, the nanoparticle, which is a spherical nanoparticle, turn into a star because it grows spikes on it, which then changes its property. But fundamentally, the chemistry is not that hard in the practical sense, but it's getting the right temperature, the right ratios, how long you mix and stir things for, right, that kind of gets you the nice particles at the end of it. So, so when you say that you tune them, you, you tune the um, experimental parameters yes. rather than making a whole bunch of different ones and then somehow sorting them or selecting them. Yeah, you have to tune the, the chemicals, the reagents and the conditions that you use to create the type of nanoparticle that you want. Right. Um, and then you getting the one that you want changes the colour and the properties. What do you actually use them for? We then interface them with our biomolecules. So that's where the biology comes in. So we add biomolecules to the surface, but we also carry out spectroscopy using them. So which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> spectroscopy well, what, what does it mean to interface something? Just kind of to stick Attach them together. it to the surface. Yeah. So we turn the, the nanoparticles effectively into labels, which we then use in systems to sense for something. So to do that, we need to target the nanoparticle. So we can do that by putting a biomolecule on the surface, so like an antibody, a DNA sequence, or it could just be a small molecule. So essentially then we turn it into a sensor that we can use in an assay, so then that that nanoparticle then becomes targeted to, for example, um, a different protein marker that you might find in your blood that will tell you about disease state or, or towards the surface of a cancer cell, for example, so it then attaches specifically to that cancer cell. You said that you're um, one of the directors of the Optima CDT, which I have insider knowledge about, and it means something <laughs> around optical medical imaging. How do you get from little metal particles to imaging, and how do you get from imaging in general to imaging breast cancer or blood or cells and drug stuff? Like, how, do, how does that... How do those things relate? So I'll start with the spectroscopy that we use. So we use a technique called Raman spectroscopy. So in basic terms, if you shine light on the molecule, so we use a laser, so it's only one specific excitation wavelength. So we hit the molecule with that light, and then the molecule scatters that light. Most of that light is scattered at the same wavelength as you put in, so it's called Rayleigh scattering, and it doesn't give us any information about the molecule. But a small proportion, so about one in a million photons, we put in, one in a million of those photons are scattered, scattered with a change in wavelength. So that change in wavelength um, tells you about the vibrations of the molecule, so what, whether there's a CH stretch or um, a CO stretch in there. So it gives you information about the molecules that are present. However, as I said, only one in a million of those photons are scattered. So you can see if you put a million photons in, only one is scattered. So it's intrinsically a weak process. Mm. Not that it's same Raman in itself, because instrumentation, etc. has improved um, dramatically. So you can get some really good information by Raman imaging. So for example, a cell molecule, which will give you fundamental biochemical information about what's going on in that system. But we combine the Raman with um, the nanotechnologies. So with the nanoparticles, if you absorb a molecule onto the surface of the nanoparticle, then it greatly enhances the Raman scattering you get back. So with normal molecules, you can maybe enhance the Raman scattering you get back by a million times by absorbing it onto the, to the surface wow. of that nanoparticle. But even better, we play about 
um, with the colour of the molecules that we put on the surface. So if we put a dye molecule and we tune the wavelength that dye absorbs at, so the, the wavelength of light that molecule absorbs with the excitation wavelength of our laser, then we can even greatly enhance that scattered light um, that we get back, which can then go up to 10 to the 12, 10 to the 14 enhancement. Okay, stop. Ordinarily, I uh, I interrupt to explain words that the guests have used, but in this case, it's um, a set of phrases that Karen uses and then Dominic and myself also carried on using so the 10 to the 12, 10 to the 14 thing, what we mean by 10 to the 12 is a, is a one with, with 12 zeros after it. Um, it's just a, a way, a shorthand way of referring to that. Now, one with 12 zeros after it is the sort of thing that you can write down and look at and go, oh, yeah, that looks interesting. What it actually is, is a million million, um, which is a pretty big number by anyone's uh, guess. I'll let you get back to Karen now. At that point, you're looking at much more sensitive data detection. So you're starting to get to similar detection limits that you can achieve using fluorescence. But the advantage of ramming over fluorescence is you get a, a molecular fingerprint of the molecule that allows you to identify the structure of that molecule, whereas fluorescence, it's it's just a broader emission profile mm. that you get out. We like that because it allows us to do something which we call multiplexing. So if you have multiple analytes, multiple biomarkers within a system that you're trying to detect. So I'll use sepsis as an example. Okay, time to stop again. Um, Karen is uh, is talking about the detection of sepsis. Um, now, I genuinely don't really know what sepsis is. Um, I've got Kat back in to uh, try and explain what Karen means by sepsis. Um, yeah, so sepsis is just... Um, I think what most people call blood poisoning. Okay. It's just when an infection gets really bad and it gets into your bloodstream. Right. So that's the sort of thing that you would definitely want to be able to tell if, if that's happened yes. or not. Yes. It's actually quite hard to detect at the moment. Okay. It's um, It can look quite similar to meningitis. It's hard to, to tell which one it is, I think. If it's a thing, a thing that's difficult to detect at the moment, it would be a really big thing to... Yeah, it gets very bad very quickly. So you need to be able to detect it early. Cool. That sounds awesome, by which I mean terrible. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Thank you. There's not one biomarker that would allow you um, to predict that someone is currently septic, um, but you generally would have to use multiple biomarkers to predict that. Mm -hmm. So if we developed an assay, for example, we could tune a nanoparticle that is specific to each of three biomarkers, and then we can over create them such that we can differentiate them in a mixture because they have unique fingerprint spectra for each one. So that allows us to identify all three. Would you the also mixture. then excite them with different lasers? Or This is the advantage here. You only need to use one excitation wavelength. Whereas with fluorescence, you might need to use multiple excitation wavelengths mm. to do that. Whereas with ramen, we can tune the molecules that are used as a label so that we only need one excitation wavelength. I have two questions. How cool must it have been for the person who, and, and how did that happen to come up with, I'll just put in very small particles of metal into this. Like, well, how? So the, how very, you, yeah. well, the very original discovery of the experiment, so. It, like, it doesn't sound so like a natural thing to do. The technique's called you know? surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy, which I don't think I've actually mentioned yet. So the original um, discovery of the technique only happened, well, I say only, in 1975, 
four. That's quite recently. Yeah, so I I think that's quite recent. Yeah, but when you're good. you're telling this to young people, <laughs> when you're lecturing to them, they're like, "Oh, that's ages ago." Well, give that's... it seven years, and it will be fifty years, yeah. right? Yeah, I guess. Um, wow. So, like, I guess all great discoveries in in science, it was discovered by accident. So what they were doing was they were measuring um, the Raman spectrum of pyridine. Um, the molecule pyridine, but they were doing it in an electrochemical cell. So they had a silver electrode. So they were absorbing the pyridine onto the surface of the silver electrode and then measuring the Raman signal of the molecule. But what they discovered was they got a massive signal. So the Raman signal should have been relatively weak of the pyridine, but actually they got a huge enhancement in this signal. And at first they, they kind of put it down to so the silver electrode will roughen on the nan- nanoscale mm. during the, the, the electrochemical um, oxidation mm. and reduction cycle. So at first they kind of went, oh, we've maybe increased the surface area. So we're maybe getting localised concentrations. That's why the signal's going up. But anyway, it was later attributed to the surface enhanced Raman effect because essentially the electrode had become a roughened metal surface, so rough on the nanoscale. Um, so it was giving the surface enhancement, whereas... So a lot of people for the original work using CERS used electrodes or, or roughened metal surfaces to do the enhancement. But nowadays, a lot of people, well, a lot of people still use surfaces. It's okay for some types of assays, but we use nanoparticles rather than the electrode as the, the enhancing So surface. you bring the metal to the target rather than the target to yeah. the metal. Yeah, so if you use a surface, you're, you have to essentially place your molecule on it, you dry it down in the surface, and it's maybe changing what that molecule's doing mm. compared to its native in, well, native environment. But if you add nanoparticles to, you know, a fluid, a liquid or a sample, then you're not changing what mm. might be happening in that system as much. Yeah. And my second question was, how can, if, if you have one in a million Raman events, how can you improve that by a factor of 10 to the 12? <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a question that people always ask. I remember um, a student being asked this in a PhD vibe, and we all we all sat back and started scratching our heads. <laughs> but essentially, it enhances the light in and the back and back out again. The molecule, as it sits on the surface, it experiences what is termed an increase in its electromagnetic enhancement. It, it, it's essentially sitting in a pool of electrons or a field of electrons, and that. The molecule sitting within that. When the, the incoming laser light comes in, that molecule is bathed in enhanced electromagnetic field because it's the electrons are excited by the incoming beam. So it, it experiences more local enhancement. Mm. So it's it's almost it's an enhancement in the incoming beam and then there's an enhancement in the scattered beam. So it's a, a localized effect essentially. But in saying that, no one really understands. So for years there was debate over the basically the fundamental theory behind the enhancement effect, and it's still debated to a certain extent. And when SERS was first discovered, they spent years debating it. So there's the chemical effect and there's electromagnetic effect. With people generally saying that um, the chemical effect is say, responsible for a hundred times of the magnification. Whereas the electromagnetic is kind of, you know, 10 to to the 6, 10 to the 8, so being the greatest effect in there. So for about the first, I would say, 15, 20 years of the discovery of CERS, a lot of people focused on trying to understand the theory behind it. And there's still a lot of people doing that. But 
now I think people have moved more on to actually let's just use it um, and you know cares it, it, well, it works there's, it goes on it still goes on in the background because we all want to understand um, and it helps you to control your system obviously if you understand yeah. the theory behind it but you know that it's exponential the amount of people that are now using ZERS for, for bio applications rather than just um, but I think that's the difference between um, chemists using it rather than physicists using it <laughs> I wonder how many things that would be working physicists have sitting in the background just like we're going to work out how that works before we start actually doing stuff with it the other thing that we do in physics or that we do in physics not that I'm that much of a physicist but the other thing that we do in physics is um, discover things before we discover them Higgs boson Higgs boson absolutely Um, the thing that I was thinking of it's gone again positrons Dirac just predicted that positron that, that antimatter existed and then people found it years later. Yeah. That seems to be the way around uh, quite often. Which is just bonkers. But maybe maybe it's that's maths. where things yeah. get taken by surprise sometimes because they're like that, damn, we never predicted this would happen. <laughs> and then someone does the experiment and no one can explain, yeah. you know, this ac- accidental discovery and go, Oh, now we have to figure out how it worked. Yeah. A, a question has occurred to me. You said that you can follow these things around in the cell, you know, so that you might mark a, a drug or, or estrogen or whatever with your nanoparticles and then you f- follow them around in the cell. So are you imaging with the spectroscopy? It depends what your definition of imaging is because um, there's a difference between mapping and imaging. But what, what you do, for example, um, if we have a cell, we can take our imaging instruments are um, have microscopes on them so the laser beam comes through the microscope. So essentially you can take a full spectrum and then you move the sample or, or the microscope a small amount, take another one, take another one, take another one, which allows you to take up thousands of spectra across the surface of that cell, which is means you have a full spectrum for every point which gives you biochemical information. So you, as well as, for example, if you put nanoparticles inside a cell, you'll get um, Raman information from the cell itself. So that can allow you to show, for example, wow, we can see exactly where the nucleus is. And then you also get the spectrum from the nanoparticles, so you can locate that within the system. So, yeah, we could take a full spectrum at every point across that cell, and then we create an image from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We can do that in different ways. We might just be interested in one one vibration. So we can pick out a vibration that we know only comes from the, the nanoparticle and we can then use that to create create a map, an image um, of where that nanoparticle is. Or we can pick out another band and use that to locate where the nucleus is or, you know, if we've got a drug in there as well, where the drug is as well. Um, so, yeah, we can get all the information, biochemical information at each point and then use that to create um, an image okay. from it. I can't imagine that that happens at like a video rate. Like how, no. how long does it take? Yeah. To... Well, it depends on how many step sizes you take. So how many spectra, obviously, the more spectra you take, the higher the, your resolution, spatial resolution is. So the longer it takes to take the full, full map. Um, so it could be anywhere from you know, doing 20 minutes to like two hours if you're wanting um, high resolution. So you come from chemistry and if you're working on biomedical stuff, so presumably you work with biologists and maybe clinicians as well. How did that happen and what's what are the challenges with that? When I did my PhD, I did it in series of drugs for abuse where they were trying to make a, a roadside drug test, like a, you know, like a 
alcohol like a breathalyzer. breathalyzer but they're trying to do it for drugs so it was funded by the home office and then I did a postdoc position looking at DNA so fundamentally I'm an analytical chemist who obviously applied that to spectroscopy but then started looking at DNA sequences and at, at that point SERS was used but it wasn't a very quantitative technique it was quite hard to quantify things within a system so I did quite a lot of work on developing um, more robust analytical approaches to doing it Um, and then gradually things got more and more biological as you got um, moved through different projects and got different um, collaborators but actually I, almost before we started working with the clinicians, we started working with the physicists as well. So I, I think I've always worked with, you know, physicists, biologists, clinicians as we started. And it's hard at the beginning because, well, at Strathclyde, we don't have a medical school, which is good for us because it means we can collaborate with Edinburgh and Glasgow and mm. other places. But I think when you first start out so without having those clinical links it's actually quite hard because you go oh it'd be really good if we could do this and then you speak to a clinician and they go that's not really much use to us (laughs) so it's best to speak to the clinician first Mm. but I don't find it challenging um, working with clinicians at all and I think it it guides things much better because as you say like a chemist or a physicist perhaps even I'm just blaming chemists here tend to go oh we can do this and then go to the clinician and they go well we don't need that or it would be better if you could do this but because we think we know better or we can detect this and they said well we don't need to detect that or that's already done so mm. so um you learn that it's better to speak to a clinician first and find out what they actually what they actually need Which probably um, takes a degree of humility as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, if you, I guess if you're hailed in your field as an expert of something mm. and then you have to go back to square one because you're starting in another field and have to say, actually, I have to admit that I don't know Jack. Yeah, but I think things have changed as well, even, you know, in the last 10, 15 years where those multidisciplinary ways of working have, have hugely increased. And I think it's almost become normal within areas for clinicians and chemists, physicists, biologists to work together, whereas maybe even just 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't perhaps as common. And I think that's more just because not, not people were stuck in their silos, but I think universities have tried to create that those types of environments where there's more proximity between um, people as well. It's just, I don't know, it's just a multidisciplinary culture has like massively increased over the last 10 years, I think, as well. And that's um, that's amazing because that's how things are are going to get done one of the things that i find quite interesting about interdisciplinary research is the the sort of language barrier um so i mean even even just for the podcast we almost every single episode we've cut in to explain a word yeah. that, that basically i've been listening back and i've not understood i've just like glossed over it when they said when they said it because i guess you've been working in kind of the same field for a while um so do you do you have the the lingo down? Is is I think essentially no, my question. No, <laughs> but I think a lot of it is about the language and being realizing that who you're talking to and like trying to mm. moderate and not being scared to just ask questions of going. I don't know what you just said. How do you get um, those conversations started? Like obviously you don't you don't just um, talk to random people in the street and say, "Hey, <laughs> I do this. What do you do?" So I assume there's something a bit more. Um, 
I guess, planned about those conversations, but it's not a, a pure chemistry conference where that will happen. Well, sometimes it is because I guess within conference context it's multidisciplinary, but quite often it comes from, you know, meeting other people and they're saying, oh, you should speak to such and such or you just end up falling into conversation or you might, for example, be interested in a particular area, disease or, or, or something that you strikes you that it might be useful and you use your contacts and go, do you know anyone that works in this area? Um, but sometimes it's just people you meet through other people and it just develops, you know, through networks. Or you just email someone and say, can I speak to you about this? If they're not interested, then that's fine. Yeah. Take the knock back. There is a last bit of the podcast. Right. The last bit is, Dominic, um, summing up what we've been talking about and what you do to see if we've understood what we've been talking about or if we've just been nodding along the whole time. So... Karen works on, <clears throat> at least one of the things that she works on, is uh, very, very small metal particles. And they are so small that um, you definitely can't see them. And the uh, one of them is in diameter about a thousand times smaller than a human hair. Roughly, that's the scale. Um, and uh, these particles are used to enhance a process called... Raman spectroscopy, and where Raman spectroscopy on its own is very weak, and can go can go under in like background noise and so on. If you use uh, these particles, they enhance the signal. And fifty years after discovery, that signal isn't, or that process isn't even completely understood yet, but it works. And so people like Karen have taken this uh, process and applied to stuff. Um, uh, for example, in the biomedical field to detect disease biomarkers. And apart from that, uh, for those kind of projects to happen, Karen also emails people that she doesn't know and talks to people that she doesn't know. And and other people that know Karen say, oh, she could be interested in this and that and refer other researchers to her and say, have a look at that as well. Yeah. That's good. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. But I think, like you. you say, looks at stuff. <laughs> but that's kind of what you say sometimes. Yeah, we just look at stuff. Yeah. So that was really interesting, and I retract my words saying that Duncan was cheating because he knows chemistry, and Karen does chemistry because essentially she does some type of chemistry that Duncan is so removed from that it didn't really matter. So at, at this yeah. stage, to be honest, I think some kind of chemistry that Duncan is so removed from is almost all chemistry. I thought that I knew about some of what she was talking about, but actually I learned a lot. I really did, which is always an interesting thing to, to talk to someone in your field and, and to just learn and learn and learn from them. And that learning topic, that's, that's an interesting one because I feel that it seems the best researchers are those that admit that they don't know everything and they are happy to accept that they don't know everything and are open to other people, not only researchers, telling them, actually, in this field, we need that, we need that, we don't need this, or Absolutely. we know this already, or this is this is sounds basic but is unsolved, and this sounds complex and interesting but is useless. One of the things that struck me about what she said was um, was that you need to um, you need to not be too conscious of 
Um, well, you need to not be too self-conscious. You need to not worry about just asking when you don't know what's going on. And I mean, we we definitely advocate that. That is the <laughs> podcast is asking when you don't know what's going on. But yeah, I mean, even when I used to be a teacher, that was what I would always say. And it is it's such a difficult thing to do. And I think sometimes people make light of you know asking for help, but but really it's a it's troubling. You know, it's it's a hard thing to do because it's admitting that you don't know something. It's admitting that you're ignorant, that you're in the dark. But especially, I think, if and when you're surrounded by people who give the impression that they know everything. Yeah, yeah. I do worry about people who give the impression they know everything because I don't think anyone does. Anyway, we'll leave you with that thought. Uh, you can find us online, notexactlyrocketscience.fm. Uh, we're on Twitter, at exactlyrocket. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone. <laughs> everyone should be listening to this podcast. Especially if you're in high school and deciding what to do and you think you don't know what science is about or science is a bit daunting. Hopefully this gets, gives you the impression that it's, actually, it's, it's not that bad, actually. It's not <laughs> impenetrable. You know, you just have to ask when you don't know. That's the key. Keep asking questions. Aw. <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. <laughs>